Uh, welcome. Um, my name is Joel Bryce. I'll be your host. Um, my role here at Delta is Vice President of Waterfowl and Hunter Recruitment Programs. And we're going to start a, a series of videos and podcasts that we want to share with everyone. Um, basically introducing you to the science and biology behind waterfowl management. Uh, once we kind of get through that series of, of videos and podcasts, we're going to talk next about waterfowl hunting. Um, we're going to talk about participation trends, need for hunter recruitment programming, and then also Delta's role um, as um, defender of, of waterfowl hunting. So um, today we're going to discuss um, waterfowl population carrying capacity. Um, today's featured guest for this podcast is Dr. Frank Rohr. Um, Frank is Delta's president and chief scientist. Um, before we get into waterfowl carrying capacity, um, Frank, why don't you introduce everybody to yourself? Um, obviously, you're president, chief scientist, uh, very tenured uh, Delta guy, <laughs> but tell us, let's get to know you a little bit before we dump, jump into this stuff. Well, let's see, I, uh, I grew up like a lot of waterfowl hunters, uh, waterfowl biologists as a hunter. And so I started hunting waterfowl when I was a kid growing up on the Chesapeake Bay. And I had the good fortune or bad fortune of watching the Chesapeake Bay fall apart in front of my eyes as I went from a grade schooler to high school. Ducks disappeared from the river I lived on just north of Annapolis and the, the Naval Academy. So, um, and I went off to school not knowing you could be a wildlife biologist. I actually was planning on being an architect or an engineer and then I got to Kansas State and, and discovered this wonderful field of waterfowl biology. And I had the great fortune of meeting a graduate student at Kansas State who was working at Delta. So I heard about Delta waterfowl um, in the early 70s and I worked very hard to become a Delta student. Um, and so I started working at Delta around the mid-70s and I've been associated with Delta pretty much all of my life from then on. So um, I went off to graduate school eventually. Uh, I, I worked at Delta for a couple of summers as an undergraduate assistant for other graduate students and, uh, and then went off to graduate school and, and did my graduate degrees, both my master's and PhD as a Delta student. Spent three years at a University of Maryland job before I came back to Delta as the chief scientist or as the scientific director. And so while I was a faculty member at Louisiana State University, I would teach in the fall and, and maybe for a little bit in January and February, and then I would travel up to Canada and run Delta's research programs. So I've had a very long tenure at Delta and it's been great to watch the organization grow and, and blossom into what we are today. So. Hmm. No, that's cool. Hey, I always kind of comes to mind, that's a long time, Frank. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's from an early part of your, yeah, or pursuing your career to today. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Like, there's a lot of change. What, what's drawn you to Delta for that entire period of time? What is it about Delta? You know, I love being associated with Delta. Um, uh, this is, of course, you know, the president speaking, but I love the way we do things right. You know, I've been at Delta several times when we've done the wrong thing. We, uh, we built a hatchery and, and, you know, it was the wrong thing to do. It, it wasn't a problem of hatching, uh, you know, producing ducks. That wasn't going to solve the duck problem. And so we did some research. I came back to Delta right as we had finished the hatchery. Um, we did the research and discovered that, that releasing mallards isn't the way to get, 
you know, a healthier mallard population. You have to deal with the underlying problem of losing wetlands or extreme high predation. So I really like the fact that we'll do something and if it's not right, you know, we stop doing that and try and find the right solutions. So in some ways it's good to be relatively small, much smaller than some other, you know, uh, conservation organizations. So because we can make changes. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and the other thing I love about Delta is we've always been science driven. You know, from the first time I went there as a scientist, and, and I had the benefit of, as a kid, um, having, having uh, my brother, who's 12 years older, have a PhD and be very interested in science. So I've had this science bug in all my life, and, and I love the way that we do things based on science. So, no, that's uh, awesome. That's a cool thing. Yeah, that is awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, Frank covered this, you covered this in your background, longtime professor, um, you taught, about everything, uh, waterfowl, waterfowl management. Right. And so um, what I like about you, Frank, is that um, not all academics um, think in real-world application, and that's one thing I've been impressed with you uh, our entire time together, which I guess this is going on 20 years together in, in some fashion. Yep. And so you always bring that academics to the real world. And I see you interacting with people, and I think it's going to come through. It's a great opportunity for people to get to meet you and hear what you have to say is, you know, it's, you know, Delta, our science is about, you know, impacting waterfowl, waterfowl hunting, doing the right thing. So that's going to come across today. So I'm going to switch to today's topic. Um, today we're going to talk about waterfowl population carrying capacity. So I'm just going to start out with a, with a textbook definition, Frank, and then, you know, we're going to jump into... Um, waterfowl, but maybe compare that first to some more simple species. So textbook definition, I'm just going to read this. Carrying capacity is the maximum number of individuals of a given species that an area's resources can sustain indefinitely without significantly depleting or degrading those resources. And, you know, there's a lot of definitions on that. You could say, you know, to, you know when, a, when a population exceeds its carrying capacity, it starts to cause itself damage, the habitat damage. Other species can, you know, can have negative consequences for that. Um, carrying capacity is really simple for something like a rabbit or a deer. You know, Frank, you gave the example the other day. You know, you have a 40-acre forest. Deer can spend, you know, a certain number of deer can spend their entire life inside that forest. Water, food, shelter. Um, but ducks are way different than that and way more complicated. Frank, can you give us a talk about carrying capacity for ducks? What does that mean? Well, let's go backwards a bit. Ducks have always been harder to manage than, than other wildlife because they migrate. And so you've got this sh resource that's shared across thousands of miles in many cases. And, th and that makes it complicated. Um, so for, for guys that own a, you know, a nice hunting lease or a, a big piece of property, you know, they manage their white-tailed deer and they're their white-tailed deer. Mm -hmm. And so you, you manage for you know, typically for white-tailed deer, the carrying capacity would be set by food supplies during the winter. Um, but for ducks, we have to look at the entire migration. So if we're talking about mid-continent mallards, you know, breeding in Saskatchewan and wintering in Arkansas, uh, uh, you've got to look at the whole spread. What we know for ducks, however, is that it's the breeding grounds that drive population biology. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll shoot a video just about that uh, uh, topic itself. 
But we've known this for 40 or 50 years, that the breeding grounds are what really matters. And so we're going to talk about carrying capacity for ducks being set in May or June. It's about the water that's on the prairies, on the landscape where ducks breed. And it's really about water. Um, you know, you can make it super simple. You can worry about where mallards nest and mallards nest in the upland and the grass. But grass is unimportant. Mallards don't look at grass. They look only at the water. And the amount of water you have in a square mile will determine how many ducks you can fit in. And it's nothing like you'd see in Arkansas. Mm -hmm. A square mile in Arkansas, you can have 200,000 ducks easily. But in, in North Dakota, in our best habitat, we'll rarely get more than 100 ducks per square mile. You know, that's... Right. Uh, that's about the limit, and that's set by the number of wetlands. And some areas in North Dakota have lots of wetlands, and some areas the wetlands have been drained, and so the carrying capacity is down to five pairs per square mile because there's no water. Right. So, so it's, so it's yeah, touch all, on that. all about water. Yeah, touch on that. You said in the, in the wintering grounds, um, how do, do you talk about carrying capacity in the wintering grounds? So, so guys in Louisiana, you know, they haven't had near as many ducks as they used to. They used to winter... Five million ducks, and now they're you know pretty good years when you get a midwinter count of three million, and so and, and there's pretty much consensus that Louisiana could support a whole lot more ducks in the winter. So the care, carrying capacity in the winter is set by food supplies, and it, and it's limited by how many ducks are flying south, not by what they can support. Louisiana does not have three million ducks because that's all they can support. They have three million because that's all that's coming south. Ducks are, are settling uh, other places, or there are just not enough ducks to, to make it to Louisiana. So for managers in the South, they often worry about carrying capacity, but they're thinking about the food supplies. So they're mm -hmm. trying to set the landscape, set the table, so that they can support as many ducks as, as possible. Mm -hmm. so, they, so they think about duck use days, which is really just a measure of how much food, how many ducks can they feed for how many days in the winter. And that's what a guy in the, on the wintering grounds would worry about. But, but by and large, you know, what we know about population biology is if we had unlimited ability to focus our money, we really should spend that money in the north because that's where populations are limited. Right. And it's this business of carrying capacity and then duck production, which is a whole different topic we'll right, talk about right. later. So. You know, a lot of the discussions we have, Frank, we talk about, geez, if, um, well, back up, you know, a large percentage of our membership and supporters are in the southern part of the United States. And so we always say, man, if we could just bring them to the breeding grounds, they would get it. And so, right. you know, maybe we can describe a little bit for them now focusing on the breeding grounds. So there's territoriality, there's food resources, um, and then also many different types and sizes of wetlands. Frank, are all right. wetlands the same? Not at all. So, so we've, we've mentioned that carrying capacity on the breeding grounds is set by water. But obviously water is not the resource. Mm -hmm. so, so the real resource, we can measure water easily. So we can measure the surface area and the edge and, and, and the amount of shoreline miles, for instance, or, uh, or the size of wetlands. It's not the water. The water is just a proxy for what's in the water that, that females need. So what limits the population size is how much resources is available for females. And particularly during the time they're settling and, and thinking about nesting and creating eggs. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so where, where ducks feed 
you've watched ducks, you know, that mallards don't feed in six feet of water. That's right. basically too deep. So they like shallow water. So the real water that's important is shallow water, particularly early in the spring. And so small wetlands obviously have more shallow water. They have, you know, a pond is, is you know, huge, and, and if it's a big pond, it's probably deeper in the center than at the edge. Mm -hmm. And so it's that shallow water at the edge of wetlands. So all wetlands are not created equal. And in fact, the most valuable wetlands are tiny wetlands. Wetlands the size of this office or the size of this building, for instance, you know, the size of a house. Those are great wetlands. You've got a wetland that's, you know, 40 or 50 acres. It has an awful lot of center that doesn't really produce food for ducks very much. Ducks, by and large, feed at the edge. So, so ponds come in a variety of sizes and, and really have what we categorize ponds based on is not so much size, but their, uh, their range from being temporary to permanent. Mm -hmm. So we start out with what we call even ephemeral ponds, only here in the spring. So lots of fields will have ephemeral ponds that will dry up in a few weeks. And then you go to temporaries, seasonals, semi-permanents, and permanents. And permanent ponds are much less valuable to ducks than are uh, than are these ephemeral or seasonal or temporary ponds. They're much larger, but you know I'd much prefer to have 10 one-acre ponds than one 10-acre ponds. You can support way more ducks. So and that's that small comes down ponds to territoriality. and seasonal ponds. Right. Right. A lot of ducks in the spring, and particularly the dabbling ducks. Almost all the dabbling ducks. Pintails are an outlier. Pintails are strange, but but most of the dabbling ducks defend territories, and so that's why we can only have say 100 pairs per square mile, because the mallards come up and they carve up these wetlands, and so a mallard will defend three or four wetlands, and and it's the male's job to defend the wetland for the female and defend the food resources. That's what he's defending. Right. Yeah, that is interesting. You know that that the bottleneck of water is during the breeding season. Right. You know, you can, you know, you'll we'll see thousands of, of ducks using a particular uh, larger marsh or even yeah. smaller marshes. Right. But they just don't tolerate each other right. um, in, in the spring. Um, so, so that's really, that's fascinating. Hey, so Frank, the other thing that we'll hear from time to time, pretty common, um, can you drought proof the prairies or we should drought proof the prairies? And I think that's a perspective that you know, um, I grew up in Wisconsin, so there's a lot of impoundments and water yeah. control structures. And when you lived yeah. in Louisiana, it was all about flooding and managing water. But it, wet and dry cycles are important, Frank, right? Uh, they are important. Um, to be honest, we really can't drought the prairies. We used to have this notion that instead of working in the prairie pothole region, we would work farther north and we would build big impoundments and create lots of permanent wetlands. And we rather quickly found, and, and, and you know, that those wetlands were not terribly valuable. Often what you get is when you create an impoundment, you get a super productive area for a few years. And then we discovered that the productivity fell right off. So, so you can keep it wet, you can flood it and keep it with water, but it's not great habitat for breeding ducks. And what we found is that when wetlands dry out, it actually rejuvenates them. So mm -hmm. in the bottom of a wetland, there's a lot of uh, basically food-producing, um, uh, basically fertilizer, but it's bound up. Mm -hmm. And unless you get air to it and it can aerobically break down, 
it doesn't become available to plants to feed invertebrates to make the good duck food that's that a hen mallard needs in the spring and so having a wet dry cycle actually helps having ponds dry out we talked about the difference between types of ponds permanent ponds don't dry out so they're never as productive even right. at the edge on a as as a seasonal or temporary pond seasonal and temporary ponds are great they're they're there in the spring, so when mallards are setting up territories in April, they're there and they're, they use them for territories. Often by July, they're completely dry. And that allows the wetland to rejuvenate. It grows a bunch of vegetation, which will break down and create invertebrates. So you get that seasonal stuff every year in, right. in small ponds. Semi-permanent ponds don't dry out except every 10 years when we have a drought, but when they do dry out, it's good for them. It, it breaks down that organic matter that's on the bottom of the marsh and, and makes it available. So, so drying out is good. You, you mentioned something else, drought proofing. When I talk to hunters in Louisiana, they say, well, why don't we just pump water and, and fill right. the ponds in dry years? Mm -hmm. and, and there's this little problem of scale. We're talking about, just in the prairie pothole region, we're talking about six million ponds, and you know, imagine having a pump at six million ponds. Uh, you know, that's a hopeless thing. Uh, you know, it's just not practical. So, uh, so we can't we can't pump water in in small wetlands. When you have 150 wetlands in a square mile, you know, that's that's just one square mile, and you've got you know this vast area <laughs> that's bigger than the size of Texas. You know, yeah. you, you you just that's not practical. Yeah. Uh, so one of one of the neat things with yeah. our job. Frank, and I remember being in an airplane with you once, and we were setting up a predator management study, and you get up in that airplane, and it's a you know, sunshiny day, and just, I don't know, I'd imagine you could see thousands, thousands of, of wetlands, wetlands. Yeah. just from, you know, two, 3,000 feet off the yeah. ground. It's, yeah, and you see the scale you're working on is, you know, yeah. we can't pump water into those wetlands. We don't have a source of water, you know, yeah. and, and you couldn't pump water into those wetlands. It would break the bank. Yeah, so, and then you go, yeah. holy cow, we have, yeah. the, the magnitude, yeah. it's so large. And you can drive from one end of the prairie pothole region to the other, and... Yeah. Yeah, it's just amazing. And so you know, the, this this wet and dry cycle, we've been in a long period of wet years, and so you know we haven't had a prairie wide drought. Sure, we've had periods uh, like Saskatchewan is very dry right now, but North Dakota and last and South Dakota last year, South Dakota had the highest water we've ever seen, and so you have this episodic periods, and so Saskatchewan didn't produce many ducks last year, but. We were fortunate that South Dakota and half of North Dakota were just so wet that we produced ducks like crazy. But we will see a period in the next, you know, decade probably where the whole prairie goes dry and duck numbers will decline and, and we just have to work through those. And right. so now one of the things we can do is is work to make areas that are wet much more productive. Mm -hmm. But that's a separate story. We'll right. discuss that later. Yep, we'll definitely yeah. hit that later yeah. on. So so I think we've established that wet and dry cycles are important. Um, when it's wet, there's a lot of ducks, and, and we understand that hunters right. would love it to be wet all the time, but that actually would lead to probably declining productivity at some point. Probably. Um, you know, now, we could have uh, a series of wet years where they're normal years. Ponds are wet in the spring, and then they dry out. Mm -hmm. and, and in those years, we still get great production because every year those seasonals and temporaries dry out. 
become productive, grow a bunch of vegetation, and then by next spring they flood up. That's the normal. You know, we have wet dry cycles that last years and years, but we have wet dry cycles that just last through the season. And those are our savior for making sure that duck production is good when we've had a series of wet years in a row. So, You know, that's what fascinates me about yeah. ducks, it always has, is that it's such a complex, it's a continental resource, and you try to describe it one way, and there's 10 but statements afterwards. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just a little yeah. bit different. So it's it's a wild, uh, fun world that, well, that I think we work in. On that line, let me talk. There was a cool study done recently here in the Coteau. And, and, and what we found out is that duck production was greater after periods of, of a seasonal drought that lasted for a year or two. And so... Um, that could happen because, okay, all the ponds dried out, and this business that we've been talking about, the ponds become richer because of the release of the fertilizer and the growth of plants and the invertebrate explosion. Mm -hmm. But it could also happen because there are other things that affect ducks. Predation, we know, affects ducks in a huge way. When you have a drought that lasts for two years, productivity goes down, you know, prairie-wide. And so, you know... Skunk populations and red fox populations and raccoon populations tank in those years probably because their food supply also went down. And then all of a sudden the prairies get wet and we get this greater productivity. So we still don't know after a drought, a drought of two or three years when it gets wet, did the productivity go up because the predator population was down or did the productivity go up because the ponds had more nutrients or is it both? And those are the types of great questions that right. we still have research to do on. So that's a that's a fun topic. So, yeah. yeah. So so we need lots of wetlands. We need and, lots of wetlands to support it, lots of ducks. And of course, prior to agriculture, there were a lot more wetlands. Right. Just kind of that right. necessary conversion um, for crop production. Right. Um, understand that. But um, so the key is to keep our wetland base intact. What are some of the exactly. ways out there, Frank, and maybe, you know, feel free to hit on some of the pros and cons, trade-offs. So use. the key is to keep wetlands as wetlands. And, and if you're a farmer in North Dakota and you're now pulling a huge, uh, you know, implement dependent behind a big four-wheel drive tractor, going around a small wetland is frankly a pain in the ass, and it mm -hmm. costs you diesel fuel and efficiency. And so farmers have a propensity to drain and what they like to do is drain the small ponds into the large ponds. You often can't get rid of the water, but at least you could consolidate it. And, and they don't understand this business that we just talked about, about small ponds are most valuable. They say, well, we'll create you one really big permanent wetland. That'll mm -hmm. be better for ducks. Not better for ducks. Not better for ducks. And so we have this push-pull with agriculture where we don't want drainage. We're fine with a wetland drying out, and if it's dry and a farmer can, can pull his, his, uh, his planter right over that and plant soybeans into that dry wetland, fine. Next year when it's wet, it'll be super productive. Right. So it doesn't hurt a pond to be farmed. What it hurts is when he takes a scraper and creates a ditch that drains this small wetland into that big wetland. That's the disaster we really don't want to see happen. That happened in Iowa long before, you know, we came along and started oh, yeah. trying to protect wetlands. Uh, but here in the Dakotas, you know, we, we have protected an awful lot of wetlands. You have wetlands on the landscape. When we 
we don't want a ditch in it. That's the main thing we right. don't want, or in Prairie Canada. And so there are lots of ways to protect it. Probably the least effective way is to go out and buy it, fee title. Right. I now own it. And the problem with ownership is it's complicated. Um, you have to take care of it then. You have to manage it. You have to pay the taxes and you have to deal with what are you going to do with that wetland. And we've discovered that that's quite an expensive proposition and, um, and it doesn't sit well in the, in the farm community. Okay, so ownership is tough, it's very expensive, and it means you have this continued maintenance. Now we can do an intermediate, and we call them easements. And we've done a lot of them since 1958. We've spent a lot of, you know, my ducks, I've been doing duck stamps for a little <laughs> while longer than you have, Joel. And, uh, and I'm really proud of what duck stamp dollars have done. Here in the, in the Dakotas, they've protected basically a third of the wetlands. So they have a perpetual easement. What we did is, and the we is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, went out to farmers and said, would you like to sell an easement? And you basically pay the farmer some amount of money, 60% of the value he might have gotten for the land had he drained it. And it's a one-time payment, but it goes on the deed and it says you can never drain this wetland. Okay, You can farm through it if it's dry, but you can't drain it. A few other things you're not supposed to do, but most of them are not terribly, you can't burn it. But doesn't matter. You can't drain it. And that's super valuable. The farmer still owns the land, but he's gotten a one-time payment. And that, and if he sells the land, the easement sticks with the land. And so it's been a super effective way to protect wetlands. We've protected about a third of them in, in <laughs> the U.S., in the U.S. prairie pothole region of South Dakota, North Dakota. Now, not Iowa, because they were drained before we started this program. But I think easements are very effective. You don't have this long-term maintenance. The farmer still owns the land and controls the weeds and does whatever. Um, so uh, that's a good program. We have, and some people believe that a regulatory approach made sense. So when we had the environmental movement, we passed the Clean Water Act. Mm -hmm. And part of the Clean Water Act said that you, you can't mess with with navigable waterways. And that got interpreted to mean all sorts of wetlands. Well, that interpretation went away, so we're not protecting individual prairie potholes now with the Clean Water Act and a regulatory approach. Mm -hmm. so, um, so, let's go backwards. I just said that we have a third of wetlands protected with easements. So if you're a duck hunter, you're saying, well, hell, that means two-thirds are unprotected. What are we doing about them? In 1985, when we created a new farm bill, we did something really quite remarkable. Yeah. And we said, okay, we're going to have no net loss of wetlands, and so we're going to put into agricultural policy a thing that we called Swamp Buster, which is you won't get farm payments, right? In, in the U.S., we love family farmers, motherhood, apple pie, but, but for family farmers, we we help. The government helps you farm. And mm -hmm. many farmers flat out couldn't farm. Commodity prices right now very low. So it'd be tough to farm without the help of the federal government. And the federal government said, you can't drain wetlands. And if you do drain wetlands, then we're not going to help you with farm support, whatever it is. And right now, farm support is tied to your crop insurance. So if you drain wetlands, you lose your ability to get federally subsidized crop insurance. And so that protects 
two-thirds of the wetlands. So, right. so we're seeing relatively little drainage south of the U.S. border in the U.S. Uh, meanwhile, in Prairie Canada, it's, uh, you know, it's bad. We're seeing lots of wetland drainage. We don't have that sort of federal policy. So, so you can protect wetlands by buying them. Bad. Too expensive and, and lots of problems. Easements are great, but you have a limited amount that you can buy with easements. So it's ag policy. It's good policy that that provides uh, an incentive, perhaps. You can think of it that way. Now, I would guess that if you're a North Dakota farmer, you see this tying up wetland protection with your farm support as not an incentive but a regulation. But, <laughs> right. but you can view that either way. Now, one of the things Delta has approached is we're still losing wetlands in the United States, particularly the very small ones, the most valuable ones, the easiest to drain we're losing. And, and so we're trying to protect those with, with an additional incentive program that is a payment to farmers to retain wetlands. If you retain wetlands, we're going to pay you for them, right? And, uh, and that's, a, you know, that's obviously going to be popular with farmers and with with wildlife folks, right, right. and uh, and so that's what Delta has, has been focused on these voluntary incentive payments. We think that's a real viable approach, both in the United States with what we call working wetlands, and in Prairie Canada with what um, used to be called in our uh, uh, version of it, it was Alice. This is why mm -hmm. we started Alice ten years ago, and we started Alice with the hope that governments would pick it up and it would become something broad scale. And the cool thing is the Manitoba government has picked it up. They, they rebranded it GROW, but, but uh, that's the acronym for, for their program. But it's, I think it's the best thing for prairie wetlands in Canada because the regulatory approach and the purchase and easements have, have not protected wetlands in Canada to the extent that we would like to see them. Right. We actually haven't slowed down drainage rates in 30 or 40 years, so, and that's not good. And so we really wanna do something to protect wetlands. Yeah, we definitely need to hold the line there. And, and you know, you hit on a couple things. So when a wetland is drained, you can put it back. Yeah. But at a much, much higher cost. And if, and it's tougher to put it back right? Just from a social perspective as well. You're, you're exactly right. Wetland restoration, yeah, sure, so we could get them back, but it's really tough to do. Once a farmer has drained that wetland and he's farming it, he's very unlikely to say, I want it back. You're going to have to pay him a lot. Mm -hmm. And the other problem is it's hard to do. It's not as simple as it seems. We've found wetland restoration to be a difficult task. So it's very expensive. It's way cheaper to protect it with an easement or with an incentive program than it is to get it back. And, and darn hard to get them back. Right. I, I challenge you to go to Iowa and say, hey, you know, you're producing 200 bushels an acre of corn here, but we want that wetland back. And, you know, no. Right, you're gonna get laughed off the landscape. Yeah, so. no, definitely. Well, you know, I, you know, I think we've done a, uh, I think we've done a good job, Frank, kind of talking about the, you know, the the, the science, you know, the framework for um, the breeding potential, yeah. you know, of a landscape, and that's wetlands. Um, yeah. We've talked about our, you know, kind of Delta's value system, you know, after, you know, for you, you've worked on the ground longer than me, but but the times that I've spent on the prairies, if you don't have the support of the farm community, you don't have a program. And so right. that's really Delta's approach is doing right. voluntary incentive-based 
with farmers, in development with farmers, applied with the farm community. We don't begrudge a farmer no. for draining yeah. a wetland. It's right. it's it's their job, right. and you know it's it's increased um, acres for production, and so you know. There needs to be an incentive tied to that as right. well. Right. You know, I guess we've jumped over a point we should make. When I'm in the South, of course, I spent 20 years in Louisiana teaching at LSU, and um, a lot of people think that ducks go to the far north, the uninhabited, you know, nobody lives there. That's wilderness. Mm -hmm. That is not at all the case. Most of our ducks come from the prairie pothole region, you know, the prairie provinces of Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and the U.S. Uh, South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana. Um, Ninety percent of the ducks are produced on private land. Yeah. I suspect that's an underestimate. I mean, this is this is good agricultural land. This is farmland. The the wetlands are owned by farmers and ranchers throughout the United States and Canada. And so, um, this is this is a working landscape. So we have to work with the ag community, with with ranchers and farmers, mm -hmm. and uh, and. And we all know that, you know, there are, there are six to eight million ponds out there that we still have, and we want to keep as many of them as we can because that's how we're going to guarantee we have ducks. But, uh, you know, that, that's a huge number of ponds, so we have to have something that's practical, and, and ag policy is the way to do that. So that's what that's Delta has been focused on is, is how do you make an ag policy that's acceptable and, and governments and can get behind it? Uh, but also works for wildlife. You know, Absolutely. there's a good mix. And, and it's not just ducks. When you protect wetlands, you protect, you know, for flood control. We've had huge problems in the United States with, uh, you know, Devil's Lake. We've spent millions and millions protecting this little town of Devil's Lake mm -hmm. because it's a closed basin and all that drainage of small wetlands goes right into the, the lake of Devil's Lake, which is flooding the town. Flooding. We spent untold, the Corps of Engineers has spent untold millions there. We could have solve that problem by protecting those wetlands in the basin and it would have been i suspect far cheaper than what we spent so flood water control storage. water yeah. storage all this downstream stuff you've heard about the dead zone in the gulf of mexico if we retain water and nutrients on the landscape and don't dump them in the mississippi river we avoid those problems so there there are a variety of ecological problems carbon sequestration is another one so yeah wetland so, vegetation yeah. does a great job yeah. filtering right. out a lot of what right. you're talking about there right so I guess, um, you know, I think we'll kind of move this one to an end. Um, you know, we'd like for everyone to look for um, a video coming out shortly that basically talks about habitat conservation Delta's way. Right. So it's how do we right. accomplish, you know, right. we've talked about the down in the weeds biology and science, right. but we'll release a video talking about the Delta's version of habitat conservation. And then also, um, We'll be coming up with another podcast, kind of talking about the other side of the coin. So we've talked about the, the population potential, right. carrying capacity. But right. the other side of the coin is production. production. Yeah, exactly. And so right. what drives production, whether right. it's grassland, whether it's nest structures. Right. We'll talk about the whole biology, bring it up from right. the ground up. And then following that one, we'll also um, release a video talking about Delta's version of duck production. So exactly. You know, um, Good. if people have questions, you know, of course, that's one thing I like about Delta as well. We're always, um, you can pretty much reach anybody in our organization at any time. So, you know, send in yeah. an email, reach out by phone. Right. So, right. we love it. Exactly. Good. Thanks, Frank. Good stuff. Thanks, Joel. It's fun.